tonight. We started a series a few weeks ago now in the, in the uh, book of Galatians, the New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in this region called Galatia. We're going to get to that in just a minute, but I want to um, celebrate a little bit of some of the stuff that God is doing among us. Sometimes we're really good at announcing things and promoting things, and then they happen, and we forget to talk about them and go, ooh, that was great. God did good stuff among us. So this last week, Monday through Friday, we had about 100 high school students up in the mountains doing camp at Union Valley Reservoir, and uh, fantastic camp, and I got to go up there on Thursday and just check it out and see what's going on and make sure, you know, the leaders are doing what they're supposed to do and all the good stuff like that, right? Little spying trip, and uh, it was fantastic. I just have to tell you, Doug Roush, who's our high school director, uh, and his wife, Michelle, were kind of in charge of it, and then Doug had another one of our high-capacity volunteers by the name of Brian Sola put the whole thing together and lead it, and they did a fantastic job. I got to listen to some of the stories about the speaker and the teachings and the small groups that were going on, and there was just a lot of really, really good stuff going on. If you... If you remember, pray for our high school students, pray for our leaders, pray for all that God wants to do among them, because, man, if, if we grab kids' hearts in high school, it changes everything. And if they slip through the cracks in high school, it's really hard to bring them back. And so pray for that whole journey. Kevin Kent, who is our middle school director, found out kind of at the last day that the people they were going to cook wouldn't, wouldn't be able to be there. And so he stepped in and said, I don't need to be on stage. I don't need to be up front. I'm just going to help do the cooking. I'm going to lead and serve in the cooking. And he did a fantastic job. I'm like, that's the kind of person we've got leading our middle school ministries. And that's just fantastic. So all the stuff that I got to see, all, some of you were there as volunteers. I see Don, you were there as volunteers. Yeah, and Joe, you were there as volunteers. So and some of you others, God bless you. That's a big commitment. These people took a week off of work to take a vacation to go, I'm going to go be there at camp with our high school students. So I was very proud of everybody who was there serving. And I uh, had, had a chance to do my uh, inaugural um, journey into paintball while I was up there. Yeah, I really, I've always avoided paintball because it hurts. I can't see any reason to go out there and just have pain. And uh, some of the young people prevailed upon me to play and it was all okay and stuff. But I had ridden my motorcycle up there. I had a long sleeve white t-shirt on. <laughs> what you're really supposed to have on is camo so they can't see you in the bushes, right? I got this long sleeve white t-shirt. It's like it has a target on it. It says, shoot me here. <laughs> You know, so it's all fine when they break us into teams, and I get out there, and, and they, you know, sound the horn, it's time to go, and I hear some high school student go, there he is, shoot him! <laughs> I was not amused. No, they didn't shoot anybody else, no, but not that time. Anyway, it's a good time, so pray for our high school ministries and our middle school ministries. God's doing great stuff among them, so it's very, very cool. I want to give you another opportunity. Last year, we gave you an opportunity in the fall to run a half marathon. It's really a cool thing. Hey, you get to go run a half marathon. Woo-hoo. Yeah, yay. I didn't, I didn't get to do it because the race happened to be on a Sunday. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I work on Sundays, just can't do it. So this year, Steve Wright moved it to Saturday. Thank you, Steve Wright. Yeah. So anyway, so we are working together. We're teaming up with World Vision again this year. We're very committed to them and the process particularly of providing water in Africa. Our, our part of that journey really is to focus on Ethiopia. As you all know, a lot of our next 10 resources that we're giving, very generously, I would say again, 
those resources, a lot of those are going to provide clean, fresh water in Ethiopia. Well, we're going to run this race and help raise some more funds for that to make that happen in Africa, to provide more water. And so the race is going to be October 18th, and I'm in. All you who are clapping are now in. Because you can't celebrate my pain without joining it. Okay, so October 18th, we're going to do a half marathon together, and it's on Saturday morning, so we got no excuses. We're going to go out there and run together. It's going to be fantastic. We got a couple of people from World Vision with us tonight to tell you what's going on and to sign you up and all those kinds of things, right? So Lindsay and Lindsay, you're in the back. There, they're waving. Turn and look at them, smile and wave. Good. So Right after we get done tonight, they're going to be over in the living room, and they're just going to be talking about the run and what it's about and what's it for and how, you know, the training and stuff. Some of you will say, I've never run before in my life. It's like they said, you know, middle-aged, overweight pastors can do it, so you can do it also. I don't know what they're saying about me, but, you know, I'm in. Already, already started training, so I'm in. So I'd love to have you guys do that and join us and make that happen. It's going to be a really fun time. Good. Any questions? So I will see you in the lobby afterwards, and I'll be pointing you that direction. So just keep pointing. Yeah, just keep pointing. Okay, that, thank you for honesty, Dory. That's good. All right. Let's see. I think that's all we have to talk about as far as that stuff goes. Let's, let's pray together, We're, then we'll look into Scripture. Father, thanks for your goodness to us. You, you do amazing things, and you do amazing things through your church. You do it through people who will say, I'll give my heart to you. I'll give my life for you to serve others. I'm grateful for that. Lord, you do stuff in our own individual soul. I'm grateful for that. And I pray that as we look into scripture today, you would be honored and glorified through us. Change us and shape us in the way you want us to go. Amen. All right. So last week we uh, were talking about this Paul's letter to the Galatians, and I read for you Paul's 41-word story of faith. I find it remarkable. There's this little verse in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and when you read it, it's like Paul's life story written into 41 words. And I told you last week, 41 doesn't matter. You know, in Greek it was 33. In other translations it might be 47. I don't know. But in the New International Version, which is what we have on the chairs there, 41 words. And I know that a lot of you took my challenge on that. I said, hey, I want you to write your 41-word story of faith. And so you took that up and you wrote it. Some of you posted it on the table. Some of you posted it on Facebook. I've been reading those. And they've been inspiring. I'm reading these stories. I'm like, look at that. That's an amazing statement of God's, faith, God's faithfulness and God's grace to us in our lives these days. And so I just thought I'd read some of these. I don't know if you've been watching those social media outlets to see what has been going on. But um, let me just read a couple of these stories for you. One person wrote, I accepted Christ early out of fear. His beautiful free gift became obvious in high school. I clung to faith, though college classes threatened to tear me away. I continue to learn how to trust him. He renews me each morning. That's beautiful. Amazing. Here's another one. Born to loving atheists and a God-loving grandma. Confused, I experimented with both God and Satan. In the darkness, God grabbed me and held on tightly. He uses me to teach both my kids and my parents. God is good. And another one. I was so lost and broken, surviving in emptiness and loneliness. 
held captive by my demons, hopeless and afraid. I encountered Jesus. His mercy washed over me, made me whole. His love has healed, satisfied, and set me free. Joy abounds. Isn't that great? Have you written your story yet? I want to throw it out there again for you because I know sometimes if I give you a challenge, some of you are like, I'm not going to do it because he's not going to ask me next week. I'm asking you this week, have you written your story? See, I think that process of getting your story down, your story of what it means to follow Jesus from your perspective, to take a moment and a, or a few moments and to write that down is going to move you forward like crazy in your spiritual journey. And I think if you neglect to do it, if you decide not to do it, you're going to miss out on a great blessing from Christ. 41 words. This is my story. I think I skipped it. Did I read Galatians 2.20 for you today? I think I skipped over that part. Let me read that for you. You guys in the tech booth, I'm going to back up for just a minute. Here's, here's Paul's 41-word story. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One of the things that I notice when I go through his story and when I go through the other stories that I've seen on these websites and even through my own story is they, they fulfill the definition of a story. We talked last week of one definition of a story says a story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Every 41-word story comes with conflict. Every story of faith comes with conflict. Nobody has a story of faith and it's just always up and to the right. That's not how it works. If that's how it was, you, none, nobody would come to faith in Christ because it's just too easy. It's like, I don't even need faith. No, our stories of faith all come with conflict because that's how stories are. That's how real stories are. That's how fairy tale stories are. Every story comes with conflict. And when I read through these stories of faith that, that I just read for you, here's some of the conflict words. College classes threatened, talking about her faith. Or this one, confused, darkness. Or this one, surviving in emptiness. That's such a picture of the conflict that comes into our lives. And sometimes, oftentimes, it's conflict that steers us to faith in Jesus. And, and don't misunderstand, conflict is still part of our lives even when we come to faith in Jesus. It's not that Jesus takes all that stuff away. Like, oh, I trusted Jesus, now my life is rosy and fun all the time. No, conflict is still in there because that's part of our story. But God walks through those things with us. When you stop for a minute and you look at your life or you consider the lives of the people in your family, the people that you love, you realize just how fragile your life is, right? I'm amazed when I look at life how much like an aluminum can it is. You ever thought about that? Life is like an aluminum can. Totally. Okay, well, it is because it's fragile. This is beautiful because it ta- contains, it used to contain sweet drink. And I enjoyed it going down. And now it's empty, which is true of a lot of our lives. It gets poured out and then it's empty. But here's what I think about this can and how much it's like our life. It's so fragile. It's so easily crushed.
For how many of you, is that what life feels like? That's what conflict feels like in our lives. Crushes us. And even when you write your 41-word story of faith, even when you say, Jesus, I trust you, I love you, I want to honor you, conflict comes into our lives, sometimes it's crushing. And then we look at the crushing that goes on in our lives and we go, how do I get that better? How do I get that back? How do I take away the crushing that has come into my life? When conflict damages our life, we do everything we can to repair it. We do everything we can to redeem it. We do everything we can to make it better. Religion is often an attempt to repair the crushed nature of our lives. For the Jews, the chosen people of God, when they turn to religion, they turn to the Old Testament law. They said, oh, if we can just keep the law, if we, can keep, if we just keep it just perfectly, then God will bless us and everything will be okay. Everything will be all right if we just keep the law. And so they turn to the Old Testament law, but the problem with the law is it's really complicated. There's, there's some stuff in the law when you read it, you go, oh, I get that part. And then there's some stuff in the law that when you read it, you go, what? Like, for example, in Leviticus chapter 11, tells you what to eat. God says, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud and only have a di- or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, in case you wanted to eat camel, the camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. There you go. Is that helpful? Some of you are like, where's the bacon? I know. See, I know. Men. Deuteronomy chapter 22 gives you a whole variety of other laws you have to obey. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may live a long life. There it is, the secret to a long, happy life. Take the babies, but leave the mom. Or when you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Or do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. And do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. There's good advice. It's complicated. There's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of stuff you, like, you, you wouldn't really think about. I mean, how many of you have ever, ever thought to yourself, I better not yoke the ox and the donkey together when I go plow today? But it's in the law. And there are a lot of people in the Jewish world, in the Israeli world, that said, hey, we've got to follow the law. We've got to follow it exactly right. That's the whole thing about the Pharisees in Jesus' generation. They said, we've got to follow it exactly right. No mess-ups. And if we've got no mess-ups, at the end of our life, it'll all be good between God and us. 
but it's complicated. Now, I'm a sports fan, so it reminds me of the NFL rule book. The first thing I thought of, that's just like the NFL rule book. I know you don't think that way, but that's how I think. And, I, you know, we're, if you're not a baseball fan or a basketball fan or a soccer fan, we're like two months away from the NFL season kicking off again. Okay, well, yeah. Have you ever, have you ever read the NFL rule book? Well, I'm going to read it for you. 2013 rule book of the NFL is 114 pages long. And it's complicated. It only has 18 rules in the whole book. But each rule has as many as 10 pages of sub-rules. Rule 1 talks about the field. Section 1 talks about the dimensions of the field. And it says, among other things, the surface of the entire field of play must be a league-approved shade of green. It's grass. <laughs> Rule two talks about the ball. Section one talks about the dimensions of the ball. Among other things, it says the ball must be a Wilson. Hand-selected, bearing the signature of the commissioner of the league, Roger Goodell. That's important. Rule number three gives definitions of things in football that you have to know. Section two talks about a ball in play, comma, dead ball. Article 5 describes a muff. A muff is the touching of a loose ball by a player in an unsuccessful attempt to obtain possession of it. Note 1. We're on Rule 3, Section 2, Article 5, Note 1, just so you can keep, in case you're keeping score. A muff does not change the status of a loose ball. Note 2. Any ball intentionally muffed forward is a bat and may be a foul, which sounds a lot more like baseball than football to me. There have field markings in the rules. All lines are to be four inches wide, with the exception of the goal lines, which are to be eight inches wide. Tolerance of line widths is plus one-fourth inch. Most of you don't care. But the Jews also had a hard time with margins. The Jews also said, oh, it's got to be within a quarter inch. Oh, it's got to be just about perfect. And the problem with perfect in when you're trying to follow rules of religion is they are never redemptive. They never bring us to the spot where we go, oh, I've got it figured out. I've got it dialed in. And nobody keeps the law perfectly. And what happened, what Paul, when he's writing this letter to the Galatians, was he's writing to them, he goes, you guys are turning back to the law. You think you started with Christ. And then you thought, oh, yeah, but we better also have the law. And he says, nobody's ever been successful doing that. Why do you think that's going to work? And so Paul writes this letter to them, and he says, can I get you back to just Christ alone? I want to read for you Galatians chapter 3, the first 14 verses, and let you listen to Paul's argument. Then I'll break it down and describe it for you and See if we can make this helpful. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? 
So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, I know that's a long passage with a lot of stuff in there. But let me just give you Paul's thesis in a nutshell. He says, in a series of questions, he said, Hey, when you came to, when you came to Christ, did you begin by faith or by works of the law? He said, Oh, we, we started by faith. And then he says, well, do you think that you can add something to your faith to make it better? And they're like, well, there's some people that came alongside of us, and they sort of said that we could, and it sounded good at the time. And then he said, well, have you considered Abraham and what his, was life and they, what his life was like? And they said, well, not really, not so much. He goes, well, and let me tell you about Abraham and what his life was like. Abraham believed God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. He believed God and God said, you trust me, I call you righteous. Not because you kept the law, not because you were fully obedient and all the times faithful, because nobody's ever done it. But he says, you trusted me, so I called you righteous. See, God doesn't use the law to uncrush the can. God uses faith God uses our faith to uncrush the can. And sometimes we want to turn to rule-keeping. And when we turn to rule-keeping as Christ followers today, we don't usually turn to the Old Testament law. I mean, no, I've never met a Christian in my lifetime, especially in my years as being a pastor, I've never met a Christian who said, Pastor Brad, Pastor Brad, I'm going to follow the law, and I'm never going to yoke my ox to my donkey. That's not how we do it when we go, I'm going to follow the rules. We make up rules. Like, I'm going I'm to believe in Jesus, but I'm going I'm to keep some rules, too, so I'm, I make sure I'm on the straight and narrow path. And so we start making up rules, like, you shall never drink alcohol. You know, if, I, if you're a Christian, you're like, you never drink. You should never smoke, because that's, you know, that's not according to the rules. And we make up these rules. We go, i got to pay the tithe. got to pay it. Look, you cannot pay a tithe, because a tithe is an offering. If you pay it, that means you owe it. That means someone's requiring you to do it. And no one can require you to do that which is an offering. But it's a religious rule that we set up. Sometimes we set up rules. We go, oh, I, I know. If I just volunteer in middle school ministries for the rest of my life, God will be happy with me and I'll be okay. Make it a rule. Make it like this religious rule. And we go, if I keep that, then I'm okay. Paul says, you are not called righteous because you keep these religious rules. 
problem with those rules that kind of create religion or religious structure for us is that they don't work. They don't make us righteous. They don't uncrush the can. Paul says to the Galatians, the law could not redeem us because religious rule keeping is never redemptive. Religious rule keeping is not life giving grace. Which is weird because some of us are rule keepers by nature. If I lived in Jesus' generation, I would have signed up to be a Pharisee. Oh, I'm going to keep the rules. Oh, oh, I'll love Jesus. That's all good, but I'm going to keep the rules. But religious rule keeping is never redemptive. It never brings us life-giving grace. The issue is when we trust Jesus, we trust Jesus alone. And once we come to Jesus by faith, nothing we do can make us more redeemable. You are never more redeemable simply because you did some good works, just because you added some stuff to your faith. Because redemption is something that you cannot do for yourself. It can only be done for you. As I was walking through this, I thought, you know, maybe it would help us to know some words. It's kind of a complex passage. There's a lot of theological stuff in there. But I thought, you know, maybe it would just help if we knew some words that are related to us here. The first word is not really in the passage. It's just described by these people who keep the law. It's the word that I would call religion. Religion, the word religion. Have you ever looked this up? The word religion comes from two Latin words, the word re which is kind of the, the prefix on this word, re plus ligare. Ligare is a Latin word that meant ligament or ligature. It was something that you used to tie something else up, like your ligaments tie your bones together. So, and re means to do something over and over or repeatedly. So what is religion? It is a tying or binding over and over and over again. Religion was never designed to set us free. It was designed to lock us in and bind us. Sometimes you look around at some of the most religious people you know, and they're not the most happy people you know, because not living with life-giving grace. Another word I think we should know is the word justify. Paul makes a big deal out of the idea of justification. Now, you understand justification because your children do it to you a lot. You know, they justify this, they justify that. You're probably pretty good at that too, right? It's not talking about that. He's talking about God justifying you. And the word justify literally means to acquit or to set free or to make something like it's never been broken. If you look at the can that is crushed and you go, that's a good picture of my life. If not all the time, then at least at certain times, you need to be justified. You need to be made like you were never broken at all. And Paul says that God understands that religion can never uncrush the can. But faith does. Faith uncrushes the can. It makes us like we've never been broken at all. 
And when conflict comes back into our lives again, because it does even if we're followers of Jesus, when conflict comes back in again, faith makes us like we were never broken at all. It acquits us and sets us free. And the last word that I would like you to know is the word redeem. Paul makes a big deal out of redemption. In verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. I don't know if you believe in curses at this point in your life, at this point in history. But the scripture says there was a curse on us. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then it says in verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us through Christ. What does that mean? He redeemed us. Redeem literally means to buy back, to buy something back to make it free or to buy something back to make it new again. Christ redeemed us. He bought us back to free us from the curse of the law to free us from the curse of religion, of being bound again and again and again. He redeemed us. It's interesting, when you look at those 41-word stories, not one of the 41-word stories that I read was beautiful because it talked about obeying the rules. Not one of those stories was beautiful because someone wrote, oh, I, I decided to follow Jesus, and I was so happy that I got to obey all the rules. Following the rules is not life-giving. It's not redemptive. Every 41-word story that I read was beautiful because of grace. It was beautiful because of redemption. I asked last week, what's your favorite story? Most of the stories that I heard you say that, that this is your favorite story, most of those stories were favorites because they were stories of redemption. And they move us, I think, because they remind us of the gospel. We have these interesting, interesting, amazing things in our culture called redemption centers. A lot of times these days they go by a, a fancy or new, new, new fancy name, you know, 21st century name. They call them recycling centers but they're really way better called redemption centers. You know how they work? You've been to one of those redemption centers? You know how they work, right? You bring all your crushed and broken cans, you stick them all in these big trash cans, you fill up your, your SUV with all these plastic bags full of broken, crushed cans, and you take them to the redemption center, and some guy's there, and they receive what you have to bring. And they don't care how broken your can is. They don't care if your can leaks from every side of that can. They don't care if you can't read the label on the can anymore. They don't care how messed up that can is. They pay you for it. So they can take that can and make it new. That's what Jesus Christ offers you when he offers you redemption. He doesn't care how broken your life is. He doesn't care how badly it leaks. He doesn't care if they can't read the label anymore. He says, I gave my life for you to give you redemption. All you have to do is trust me. And you cannot add anything to your life 
anything to your faith that would make you more redeemable. Do you know what churches are? Churches are redemption centers. It's a redemption center. Bring your cans. Bring the broken ones. Bring the ones that leak. Bring the ones that can't, you can't read the name on them anymore. Read the ones where you can't read the label. Bring you. When you are that broken and that leaky and that unrecognizable, bring you. Because there's redemption here. And bring your friends. Don't tell them they're a broken can. <laughs> but bring them. Because it's a redemption center. And there's a man here named Jesus who will pay, who has paid to buy you back, to make you new, and to set you free. And that's why we call it amazing grace. Jesus, that's the best news in the world. There's nothing else we have to do. There's nothing else we get to do to add to what you've done for us. We just come to you recognizing that we're already broken, recognizing that the stuff in our lives that the Bible calls sin has already crushed us. And all we get is to come to you and say, God, here I am. I trust you. Would you redeem me? And Jesus, you say yes. That's the best news in the world. And Lord, I want to pray for my friends here who already know you and who have already trusted you. I want to pray for them that they would rest in that. To stop trying to add stuff to it. To stop trying to perform in a way that will gain your approval. You've already redeemed us. And so I pray that our lives would be lived as an act of gratitude for all that you've already done. And that in that process, you would receive glory and honor and praise. Amen.